Well, I wonder if any of you have a group of people in your life that you might call complainers. The people who are often focused on the negative, people who are always pointing out maybe how life isn't fair or how they particularly got the short end of the stick. Anyone? Is, is it just me? I've collected many of them, so maybe I've spared you from a few. Um, I found that we can get so irritated at people who spend all their time complaining that we end up spending our time complaining about the complainers. It just seems like human nature I mean, to focus on what is less than positive. I've even seen some memes on the internet poking fun at people for being so quick to whine when things don't go our way. Sometimes we call this first world problems. Have you seen any of them? I mean, it's, it's saying in a way, really, these are problems? I mean, there are people around the world, we prayed for some of them this morning, who have trouble with survival, with making it to the next day, but we post things sometimes that seem a little odd, and compared to true struggles, ours seem a little less than. So these first world problem memes poke fun at the whining that we do about things that are, let's just say, a little bit less than life and death circumstances. We're going to look at a couple of them this morning. Um, well, the first one is this. I left the remote all the way on the other side of the room, and now you have to get up and go get it. Doesn't that expression just say it all? Or particular to this season, this one, but I asked for extra foam on my pumpkin spice latte. And you can see this friend comforting her friend over this epic tragedy that she's going through. And then one of my favorites, I don't mean to poke fun at anyone's fashion sense on this campus, but if my ripped jeans keep ripping, I'll have to buy a new ripped jeans. Um, first world problems. It's good to laugh at ourselves once in a while. It's good to remember, though, those that struggle with more epic problems than these. The Israelites in particular, they, they were far from living a comfortable experience they had been wandering in the wilderness for years, near starvation, always struggling with thirst. I don't know if you've ever visited a desert, but it's sort of like the beach without the good parts. Just burning heat and sand and no place to ever wash it off. This was a hard place to be, especially to live for multiple generations. And they were going to be there a very long time. And so as one of their hobbies, they took up complaining. And they complained a lot. And it seems that every time they complained, God listened. And God provided for their needs at every turn. They were, they were thirsty, and God gave them water from a rock. They were hungry, and God made bread fall from the sky. They got tired of eating the bread. So God brought so they would have meat to eat every day. But every time that God provided for their needs, they found something else to complain about. Listen to this uh, verse that we heard from Numbers, chapter 21, verse 5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Leave that up there for just a moment. Which one is it? Is there no food, or do you detest the food that you have? reminds me a little of a kid standing at the open refrigerator and staring at all of the things in it and saying something like, 
there's nothing here to eat. Every time God produces a miracle, all the people seem to be able to do is to focus on their own problems. I mean, this is the Lord. He's rescued them out of generations of slavery. All that they can think about are those few comforts that they had back in Egypt where they were slaves. This is the great God of the universe performing miraculous acts on their behalf. And God is calling their attention upwards. But all they can do is think about the inward, the downward, and the small. Their obsession with complaining gets so bad that they no longer just complain about their circumstances. They begin to complain about their leader, Moses. Pretty sure that Moses' story is in the Bible just for those of us who lead in ministry to remind us that we're not alone sometimes. They don't even stop at complaining about their leader, Moses. They begin to complain about God himself. And this next part of the passage from Numbers 21 is one that we don't talk about very often. I mean, it is not in my kids' children's Bible to read as a bedtime story. This is from Numbers 21, beginning with verse 6. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, Oh, we've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. What a bizarre story. I mean, in the, in the words of Indiana Jones, why did it have to be snakes, Lord? <laughs> why? Why not turn your people's hearts by sending a, a herd of cuddly hedgehogs among them? A, a group of puppies that they encounter in the desert, even lizards. I mean, lizards are much more palatable than snakes any day. And although... I'll admit, I don't totally comprehend this story. I will say something about the method that God uses here. When they were surrounded by a multitude of poisonous snakes, nobody was thinking about the food anymore. <laughs> it's a little bit like that parenting technique where somebody says something like, stop complaining or I will give you something to complain about. <laughs> poisonous snakes killing people in your tribe is not a first world problem. So the people finally had something true to complain about and to go to God with instead of complaining about God because of. As strange Old Testament stories go, this has got to be one of the strangest. God's people complain and grumble and whine until even God has had enough of them. He sends in the poisonous serpents and suddenly they are very repentant, very much in need of God's help. So God has Moses craft this poisonous serpent look-alike and raise it up on a pole, and all who look at it are healed. When the people take their eyes off of themselves, when they, they look at this gift that God has sent them, God saves them. This is an odd story. I, I don't hear many children's sermons about this story, for example. We just don't bring it up much. But why not? I mean, Jesus did. Jesus preached from this text. 
he used this story as an illustration in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, an unusual conversation that is filled with odd metaphors. And it's from this conversation that we get one of the best-known Bible passages ever, probably the one most memorized, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. You've heard that one before, right? But just before it, the two verses immediately before John 3.16, Jesus says this to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just as the serpent was lifted up as a point of salvation, a gift from God, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I have to admit that I, I love this peculiar little mention that Jesus gives of the snake story, where he compares himself to this obscure bronze serpent that we never talk about, the once lifted up by Moses. And, and part of it for me is I have a deep love for biology. It's not just a love, it's a bachelor's degree that sits in my back pocket that I don't get much use out of sometimes. So when biology comes into play in a sermon, well, it's like manna from heaven for me. I have always thought that it was an ironic twist of nature that the cure for a snake bite, anti-venom, is often made from the venom of a snake. Instead of just having a punishment that fits the crime, here, it is the cure for something that fits the echo of the punishment itself. You're bitten by a snake. Here, have a snake. This will help to cure you. When Jesus told Nicodemus that he, the Son of Man, would be lifted up, he knew that his death on a cross would cause, even those whose action caused his death, would bring them to look and take notice possibly be saved. That includes us. God's intention was for the whole world to be able to look to the crucified Messiah, that Jesus' death at the hands of sinners would be the ultimate cure for sin, the anti-venom to the venom of the world, that the brokenness of the cross would be the cure for the brokenness of this world. And somehow the death of Jesus on the cross brings about the end of death for us. Isn't that amazing? For anyone who would look up, lift their eyes to him, and believe. This odd little story in Numbers somehow make, helps us to make sense of the nonsense that is the cross. And for Jesus to bring it up with Nicodemus so close to the beginning of his earthly ministry, saying that he predicts his own death here right at the beginning, it's amazing. And he tells the world that he will be the anti-venom that will overcome the venom of this world. But Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is actually not the only place that the serpent makes another appearance in Scripture. In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 18, we find a new king, Hezekiah, one of the few good kings, cleaning a house, which is how you know you have a good king. In 1 and 2 Kings, there, there are clear differences between the good kings and the bad kings. The, the Bible never leaves it up for debate, which is which. 
They never disagree on what kind of leader they have. It spells out exactly what good kings do. Now, bad kings worship idols. They worship false gods. They set up places of sacrifice to them, and they lead their people to do the same. Good kings do the opposite, and Hezekiah is one of those. Good kings take down the idols the people have worshipped. They lead them to worship only the true God again. Hezekiah is one of the greatest reformers of all the kings. And in 2 Kings, in chapter 18, starting with verse 1, we read this. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Hezekiah knew that if the people were going to learn to worship God, they would have to take down all the things that they had been worshiping. And this meant putting all the idols in their place. All the other things in their lives that had drawn their attention, their affection, their worship, all the other things they had lifted up before the one true God, or even in addition to him, they had to go if this people were going to worship God alone. Worshiping God alone means identifying the things that come into competition with him. Not only identifying them, but smashing them. Taking them out. Because when God is at the center, there is no room for worshiping anything else. The fact that Hezekiah smashed the idols and took down the high places, it's a good thing. It's a first step in leading his people to worship God and knowing their loyalty was Hezekiah knew when he took away those places where God's people had turned away from him, they would be more likely to turn towards God himself. And he claimed God's people for worshiping God alone. But keep reading in that same verse, and you find one more idol, almost an afterthought, as if it were just one more thing. 2 Kings 18.4 He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They called it Nehushta. They saved it. Saved the snake. It had made such an impression on them. It had been such a a central story in their salvation that they brought it with them. They carried it along in their journey. When, When our family moved to Wilmore four and a half years ago, We went through an unusual series of events that meant that we lived in four houses in one year, two children under the age of four. I felt during that time like my life consisted of unpacking and packing boxes. Some of you know this life well. I was always unpacking something or packing it and thinking, we saved that? Why did we save it? When when you move a lot, it becomes clear what matters the most. You don't want to take the things that don't. The people of Israel moved a lot. They were a people on the move, and they saved the bronze snake. They had been packing it along with them for a long time. And for a while, at least, it it must have reminded them of what God had done. They must have told the stories of how they, they looked up, but not at, past it the Lord God himself, the source of their salvation, 
It must have led them to worship God. But at some point, they, they got a little nearsighted. Stop looking past it. Started looking at it. This story says they began burning incense to it. They personalized it and gave it a name. They called it the Hushton. They named a bronze snake. Let me just say this. If people can worship a snake, they can worship anything. God had given them a gift, a remedy for their mistakes, their sins, and, and when it worked, they eventually began to worship it as a god and made an idol out of the very thing that God had given. When God gave it to them, he wanted to show that he was their rescuer, but they began to look at it as an idol of rescue. And I, I could go on talking just about how ridiculous this is, worshiping a bronze snake as if it's a god. We could talk about these people as if they're silly, but then it starts to hit home a little bit, right? I think of all the times God has placed something in my life, a good gift, and I have somehow begun to worship it. How I've begun paying more attention sometimes to the gift than to the giver. When we read the Old Testament, we, we like to think that idols will be easy to recognize. They have names like Baal and Nebo and Bel. None of us would ever worship a god made with human hands. We've read the Old Testament. We know where that leads. But what about, what about a gift that comes from God's hand? What about something that has been instrumental in our faith? our life and our calling, even in our, our salvation? How do we keep it in its place? Idols are tricky. They start out as beautiful gifts sometimes, but they have a way of creeping into the center of our hearts. We, we might ask God to provide what we need, and when he does, we're so glad to see it that we begin to gaze upon it, to take delight in it. Sometimes we can end up spending so much time and energy, even anxiety, focused on these gifts that we forget that they came from the giver and were always meant to point us to him. It, it's easier to slip into idolatry sometimes, worshiping something that is good, than it is to worship something that would be easy to recognize in an idol, something false or bad or evil. How do we know when we've slipped into this place? Idols cause worry and anxiety. Idols cause us to put our health, our Sabbath, our families in jeopardy. We give ourselves more and more to them. Idols can make us compromise our integrity, even if we think our worship seems to honor God. Anytime our integrity is on the line, it's not God we're worshiping. If, if you sometimes find yourself jeopardizing your wholehearted love for God in order to love or serve something else, even if God has placed that thing in your life, you might have a Nehushtan on your hands. It, it's understandable. It's so much easier to focus on what we can see and touch than it is to think about an invisible God, especially when you're in the wilderness. This happens easily and early in the life of seminary students. Sometimes grades, the praise of our mentors, or the ladder that we're climbing to reach our calling, 
to make us think that we should sacrifice our health, our relationship with God, relationship with others that we love, just to get more of that thing. It's not unique to this place. The, the church is full of Nehushtans. There are beautiful traditions surrounding our faith, things that have brought many of us to Christ. There are, there are buildings and architecture that make our hearts soar. There's music and liturgy that lead us to worship. There are leaders that we love to follow or listen to. But if, if we end up with such an attachment to those things, buildings, worship styles, leaders, preachers, that we can't worship God without them, that we would come to blows just to protect them instead of the living God. Probably having a hush tonight. The church in all her glory, with her arms reaching around the world, is a gift from God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. But watch her closely, friends, because the day our eyes stop on her is the days that the name Nehushtan gets whispered again. The day that we don't report the abuse of children in our churches because we think it might damage the witness of the church. Nehushtan. The day that we hold so tightly to our methods saying, we've always done it this way, but lose our love for scripture saying, we have to keep up with the culture. Nehushtan. The day that we are so focused on the unity of the church that we believe we can compromise her holiness to achieve it. Nehushtan. John Wesley told us this about the church. In all cases, the church is to be judged by scripture not the scripture by the church. God has given us many good gifts to point us to him. But we can't fall so in love with those gifts that we lose sight of the giver, of his love for us, of his contagious holiness that is always at the center of all we do. Look up, he says to us. Look up, but past what's on the pole. Look up and worship me. But we are a nearsighted people. We hold so tightly to these gifts that sometimes we find ourselves clinging to them and not God himself. My mentor and Asbury's president, Ellsworth Callis, said this about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. He said that the reason it was first is that if you broke any of the other commandments, you had already broken that one. You had essentially already broken your promise to worship only one God. You could put something so far before God that you could easily justify your serving it through lies or stealing or murder, lust or greed. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. We've been looking so carefully that we're practiced at recognizing and resisting the whispers of the snake in the garden, the one who whispers temptation to ignore God's commands. God, really say it? The temptation to grab for forbidden fruits in the world. But we've been so busy looking for the snake in the garden, sometimes we forget to look at the snake that God gave, him, gave us himself. The one that started off with such purpose, such beauty, to heal, to bless, to lead us to salvation to lift our eyes to the heavens where our help comes from. Sometimes our eyes become so focused on that thing ourselves. And when things go wrong with the gifts, well then we just, we start complaining again. 
There's something about those complaining people in the wilderness that I identify with more than I would like to admit. So I am thankful that God did not give up on them because it means he might not give up on me. I'm thankful that when their superficial complaints became a true cry of pain, God himself provided the source of healing. God delivered them, not, not by taking them out of the wilderness, not even by removing the poisonous snakes, but God began to move in among evil and conquer it with good. He moves into the midst of death and brings life. As scholar Terence Frethein put it, when that bronze snake is lifted up in the desert, the death-dealing forces of chaos are nailed to the pole. Then somehow that gift that God gave becomes the thing that we love, domesticate, name, idolize, and worship. It's, it's human nature to want to worship what's visible, what's good, really what we can control. The only idol is ourselves. We sometimes fall so in love with those gifts that the image of our invisible God is hard to picture, hard to remember in our mind's eye. So what do we do to counter this nature that we have inherited from the wandering Israelites? What do we do to knock idols off of their thrones? We worship. We worship the true God. Because when he comes in, there, there's no room for anything else. Every year, sometime in the fall, a new student will say something to me like, wow, you have chapel on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and, and there's daily Eucharist, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and what, don't even tell me about morning and evening prayer. You people worship a lot. And I say, tell me about it. But really, the answer is this, friends. We, we dare not worship any less. Because we talk about God all day long. We worship in our classrooms often. But we come to this place and other places on our campus, make room again at the center and say, God alone. Not even the gifts, friends, not even the good gifts deserve a place on that throne. God never gave up on us when we wandered away. He still doesn't. Instead, the invisible God put on flesh became visibly human, said, do you need a face? Here's mine. He gift-wrapped himself. But instead of celebrating him, that, that gift was despised and rejected. Again, I love Terence Frethein, the scholar on this point. And so one day, the pole must reappear in another God-forsaken place. High on a hill overlooking the holy city, God himself has taken to the pole once and for all so that all those who know they're dying in the wilderness can be healed. Friends, look up to him and live. The giver of all the good gifts became himself the greatest gift. And the gifts, they're never the point at all. They only point us to the giver. Just as Moses said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, just as Moses lifted him up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The giver of all good gifts has become the gift, best of all. Let's pray. Lord, you, you are such a generous giver, and we love all that you've given us. 
God, today help us to hold those gifts lightly, with open hands. God, if there are things that have crept into our field of vision that have blocked you out, sweep them away. Help us, God, not to make crowded altars that you can't fit into. Lord, we want to give all of ourselves to all of you. So come, Lord Jesus, lift our eyes to the cross. Save us again. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit.